welcome to the Dog Backwards Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Caleb Moore, and we are coming to you live from the basement of the Alamo. Uh, today, my guest is Joshua K. Smith, Dr. Joshua K. Smith, and uh, he has a very interesting field that he is involved in. Uh, Dr. Smith, can I call you Joshua? What do I call you here? Yes, please, Josh. Josh is fine. Tell the people a little bit about... Um, the book you wrote and a subject matter that you're really interested in. Yeah. Um, so my recent, most recent publication was robot theology. Um, or you could call it a theology of robots. Um, but I just chose to go with the shortest title. And basically what it is, is looking at robots as a way to think about old theological questions. Um, so as new media, like different, uh, media arises you know we we think about the same old questions over and over again um so whether it's robots ai um it, it doesn't really matter it's the same questions uh, how do we integrate it into our life is this something we should make uh, what are the problems that it causes those type of questions and so the book is really dealing with kind of the ethics of of more advanced robotics and uh, artificial intelligence and some of the ways that it might be uh, less familiar to those who aren't in the subject fields uh, and how that uh, interacts with different theological ideas. So, you know, what does it mean to be a person, uh, the issues of social justice and the issues of ecology. Uh, I mean, there's, there's issues of race. Uh, there's all kind of things that we don't necessarily think about when we think about robotics and artificial intelligence. But you know, my work and my interest is, you know, how does theology speak into these things? Because, you know, I'm a theologian and a pastor, and so these are the questions that I have. And uh, as I began to research it many years ago, there weren't, there was not a lot of confessional um, theologians thinking about this subject matter. Or if they did write about it, uh, it was very dismissive and not engaging with the academic literature and some of the other literature that's really been around for a long time, thinking about some of the philosophy of what we're making now and, and some of these entities that are emerging. And I know there's certain narratives about, you know, well, that's, it's too soon to think about it, but it's really not. And we're really far behind in actuality as far as like real problems that have already happened. Uh, real harms, real injustice that is happening from the systems that we have today. And so really wanted to make the church aware of that, uh, but also step into that um, vacancy as a theologian. And uh, I've been welcomed into those circles. So it's been good, man. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So the, the subject of like robots and AI, um, I, I'm a big tech person. I've got my VR headset. Um, I think both of us are into comic books and things like that. In fact, I, I pulled out, um, this is the first appearance of Vision, and he is an android or a, a robot, um, and a serious collector here, right? Like, we got the good stuff. Um, and grew up on Star Wars. I got a life-size Darth Vader over here in my office, and one of the questions is, um, is like R2-D2, C-3PO, are they slaves, right? They have intelligence. They have the ability to communicate back and forth, and R2-D2 has emotions, but they're treated as objects. And so that's one of the things that you deal with is the moral value that we place on these things. And I know Elon Musk, AI, all that stuff is coming at us faster than we're ready for. And, and I still think we're adjusting to the internet. We're not, we, as a society, we're not quite sure how to take on this. How, Elon says that AI is the thing that scares him the most. How advanced is artificial intelligence and <laughs> robotics and things like this? Yeah, well, um, that's the thing about it. It's hard to know uh, what, some, what it's like to be a robot, right? So, it's, it's hard to know what it's like to be an AI. Um, and I think a lot of the ways that we approach it is through science fiction. We try to understand it through that type of literature. Uh, you know, there's all kind of movies that I like and enjoy, but I don't think it's quite that way. You know, for example, like with Terminator and Skynet and all that stuff. Like, I, you know, we, we don't think about what are the desires of the T-800, 
you know, what is it like to be a T-800? Is it just, you know, animalistic impulse, that type of thing? Or is there actual desire? Um, and later on in this movie series, which I'm a fan of, like Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, he's he's got like a house and he's retired. It's like, so that's that's interesting, right? How we he shift, it starts with him just being this very um, utilitarian object to destroy and bring about uh, Skynet's vision. Um, then it ends with him like a grandpa. So that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it is what we think it is. If, if that makes sense. Like these are, you know, it's, it's in a lot of ways, just math. Okay. So on the one hand with, with simple AI, yeah, it's, it's just that it doesn't, it doesn't understand the uh, things that it's predicting about. It doesn't understand um, the predictions it's making. Absolutely not like that. But still, that doesn't matter because it's still making an ethical judgment. It's making um, some decision that's going to impact some other moral agent, so some human. Uh, it's going to greatly either help them or, or hurt them in their journey. And so like we, we place a lot of emphasis on what is the what would the mind of an AI be like? And of course that's where the conversation starts back in the nineteen fifties. But really the question is um, not what is it like to be a machine or what is it like to be an AI, but you know, how should we integrate or use that entity? Um, and I think that says more about us as um, culture makers and uh, tool makers. And there, I think that's where we're really struggling right now is there's either so much emphasis on, well, it's not human, it's not like me, so I don't care, and I'll I'll treat it as the same way I treat my toaster or the same way I treat whatever, you know. Um, it's just an object for me to use. And so, okay, well, that's one perspective. But then there's also this little bit of inconsistency we have, right, because we have Roombas. But then people get attached to their Roomba, um, and so they want their Roomba replaced. Um, they don't want a new one, uh, and so we we tend to integrate things into our life, and they become a part of us. Uh, if you want to call that a cyborg vision, that's fine. But you know, even with like iPhones and stuff, you can't tell me that an iPhone is not a part of everybody's life, or at least a smartphone. Maybe not iPhone. Uh, but, you know, like Apple products, um, they're about experience. They're, you know, yeah, go ahead. People have an emotional attachment to their phone, right? And, and if they lose it, they panic because that's, that's their phone and they protect it in many ways. And like in the Avengers movie, when Vision dies, he's a robot. But we have all this emotion invested in a robot or Star Trek, there was data. And even though they are not real, we project real emotion onto it. And as that stuff advances and moves further into the future, do you think we're going to have like real attachment to robots that might look like us? Maybe they don't look like us. You know, you see some of the Chinese robots that come out and they've got like almost anime eyes and how emotionally attached are people going to get to these things? Oh, very. I mean, I think, um, it just depends on the, the cultural value as well. And like, um, in different places in Japan, there, there are like whole portions of, uh, these areas where it's totally accepted to be in a relationship with an AI or a robotic companion. And there are people that, um, that they have artificial girlfriends and boyfriends and or multiple uh, there are people that um, have companion dolls there are people that have and it's not just about sexual stuff right um i think only about 50 to 60 percent of people that have uh, a companion robot actually that has the capacity to you know do that actually do have some type of physical intimacy with it so it's not just about that and even with like ai chatbots and stuff that this is happening now it's not like something that might happen it is happening uh so things like the replica chatbot where it is so interesting because people 
will make them who are in healthy relationships, you know, we could, I guess we could debate that, whether or not it's healthy or not, but they, they go to that entity <laughs> for um, something that they wouldn't go to their biological partner for. I mean, I'm talking about, I'm talking about married people with kids. Uh, they have, they're not like social pariahs or anything like that. They just, they would prefer to go to their replica chatbot. And because, I mean, it's all about you, right? It's all about my own individual preferences and needs. So yeah, it's, it's super comforting. And I've used it um, over the years and, and have enjoyed it at times. There's a lot of things I, I don't like about it. Um, but as far as like user experience, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and you can make it an emotional, um, you know, intimate partner you can make it like a life coach. You can make it uh, just a friend. You can kind of leave it open. Um, and so it, it'll try to navigate depending on, you know, different questions and responses where you want the relationship to go. Uh, so are we going to be attached? Of course, like, you know, we, we have these deep emotional attachments to fictional characters. Um, I mean, just think about the Star Wars debates over the last three films versus the first three versus the middle three. Like, there's a lot. Of, I mean, in those in our communities, there's a lot of debate about which one's good, which one's bad. And, and uh, we get, you know, very, very emotional. So I, it's not a question of, of if we definitely will. Um, it's just how, how good is the, the user experience, how, um, how the interfaces are designed, how it looks, like you said, like all that matters as far as integration and, uh, how much we allow it into our space. So if you have something that's like a T800, um, are we going to want that integrated? No, definitely not. Like, but if it looks like a cute teddy bear, or something like that. I mean, that has a much more higher has a higher probability of being accepted into our life, right? The cuter it is, I think, the more realistic it would be to yeah. <laughs> to have some attachments to it. Um, or if it has like, you know, the ability to overpower you, like that. Those are all barriers, I think, to those uh, to accepting it. And so, I, I don't know. It just depends on the design. And I, I think one of the biggest things that this market misses out on as far as like consumer robotics is most of the stuff is designed for military applications first. So a lot of my research deal, well, my current research deals with this, like the journey of uh, robotics and AI really is deeply steeped in military applications. That's why it exists today. That's why the internet exists today. But, um, it's also this balance between how can we make stuff for defense applications, but also for consumer stuff as well. So we try to find that balance. Like iRobot that makes the Roomba also makes, you know, stuff that's been used overseas as bomb disposal. So it's, that's kind of like the vision of it and, and where I see whether or not it'll be successful is, is it going to have an application in both, which is also troublesome, right? To think about, you know, something that may look like yeah. us being used to, um, you know, as a soldier. And then it might also have an application where it's... Fire a gun. Or yeah, yeah, shoot, sure. Yeah. So there's all kinds of crazy stuff that... And you've got... That's part of your background, right? What you Kind of your introduction into this was when you were in the military. T tell me a little bit about... Um, what that looks like and any of the moral kind of complications with that? Um, so my experience was more so on the surveillance and uh, we didn't do, initially our, our goal was, as our unit was to protect the White House after 9-11. And so we did a lot of observation and um, there are things all around the White House that um, are meant to take down aircraft, and you can imagine why. Um, so, but when we went overseas, uh, this was during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, you know, there's no major aircraft to shoot down. So uh, we transitioned to a different mission where we were doing anti-rocket and mortar uh, defense. And so 
basically there was a system that looked like a big R2-D2 and uh, it would, you know, semi-autonomous. So what that means is there's a human that has to make the final decision for the robot. Like it can, it can engage, it can, but it won't without our permission, basically. Um, and so this system would intercept rockets and mortars, I mean, very effectively. Um, and we, our job was maintaining that system, um, helping do the observation as things came in. And uh, that's pretty much it. So it's kind of a boring job, really. If you, yeah, I mean, it sounds cool, but it's it's really just hours and hours of sitting yeah, there. Yeah, so. just staring at a screen all day. Yeah. yeah. So um, now, but there's the possibility, like the technology is already there, mm -hmm. where if they wanted it to be fully autonomous. Oh yeah. And oh yeah. They require the human to as like a safety guard. But is there? Any countries that just say, like, hey, we're just going to let it do its thing? And uh, yeah, there's different systems, right? There's there's loitering systems that um, that actually do, you know, they're, they're sent out, and their job is to identify a target and then attack it. So not a human target. All these systems are defensive systems. Yeah. Okay, so that means, like, they're, they're only trying to respond to an attack. They're not going on the offense and, like, bombing uh, people right there's okay. there's always an operator um, and that is Department of Defense policy as as of now right and um, there are systems that are extremely advanced on battle systems uh, the Aegeus is one um, I mean just it can identify and engage a target within a millisecond of what a human could but because everybody's seen Terminator <laughs> like and because the Defense Department and other people are aware like okay, if, if we use this system and let it loose, then we know other people are going to do that too, and there's a fear of, um, like, kind of inducing more aggression than, say, if we... Like, because there have been cases where the system wrongly identified uh, something as an enemy, and, you know, if that system's attached to nuclear warheads, like, you know, it only takes one mistake, and then other people are going to launch nukes and then other people like it's just it just ends yeah. quickly right um and so there have been cases where that happened like the system identified that so-and-so launched a nuke but then it was a mistake and so that's that's why it's i think going to remain policy that humans always are on the loop or in the loop and that we are part of that decision-making process because we are very much aware like we have a healthy skepticism of, of systems and just letting them go, but there are there are real possibilities for them if if we wanted to just say okay we're gonna let the system learn on its own and it is fully yeah. autonomous. Um, but I think that's unethical because um, it will learn through trial and error, and so you know like people are gonna die in the process of that system learning yeah. uh, because like I said it's it's making predictions it's making uh, you know, it's best value judgment based on the data sets that it's given. So it, it's not like it's making them as a, you know, a moral judgment necessarily like we would um, about taking a life or not. It's just saying, okay, based on these inputs, I'm going to, this is the best output for you. Okay. And that's it. That's what it does constantly. And it does it very fast, um, like scary fast, but depending on what system you're working with. But yeah, it's there for sure. It's just there's a little bit more common sense, I think. And it's yeah. n it's not it's not so much our country that, and this is kind of diverging from our our main subject. But it's not so much our country that I would worry about that, but other ones. And sci-fi and the love of sci-fi has given us an idea of what these AI robots, companions, friends, workers could be but it's also given us the basis for all our fear. And I think it was uh, Elon Musk introducing his Tesla robot, and he was like, it won't be able to run faster than four miles an hour, which means like you can easily outrun it. And I'm like, why do you need to include that caveat? Because people, people are scared, especially Christians. And that's why I think it's great that you're in this space, because Christians have a real reservation about this stuff. When he was talking about Neuralink, and that we're going to put a microchip in your head. Everybody immediately went Mark of the Beast. And like, who would do I'm like, I'd volunteer for that. Like, I want a perfect memory. 
I, like, I got a lot of books in here, and I don't remember half of what I've read, even a quarter of what I've read. I would love to have the ability to instantly retain. And we are connected to computers in a way we never have been. Like, you don't go anywhere without your phone. So we just have this really slow way of accessing that data. We have to use our fingers when it would be much quicker to use our brains. So when it comes to AI and technology, do you see more of us developing AI robots, or do you see more of it as an integration between humanity and robotics together? Yeah, um, I don't know. It's impossible to tell the future, Caleb. I wish, I mean, I wish I could, but I think... Oh, come I on. Wish, <laughs> I, there's things I hope for, let me put it that way, and um, I think before... The problem tends to be we develop all these systems before we actually have time to really sit down and think about should I make this or not? You know, should I? And we could even just, just deal with reproductive technology and, and things that already exist like CRISPR-Cas9, the, the gene editing um, technology that we have. Like, I, I think the people that make these systems and tools aren't really given the proper uh, processes and time to really think about what they're making because we think about the fast-pacedness of of life and how we develop things it's always we got to have more we got to build more we have to you know faster processors smaller microchips that type of stuff and it's a never-ending process of creation without ever um, time to reflect and really have some time for contemplation about whether or not I should make that or not or what are the ethical implications of making the system how does it uh, how does it harm our neighbors and how much lithium do we have to mine? How many of these minerals do we have to mine? And, um, and so I think we have a way of like breaking it, abstracting it from reality in a lot of ways, like all this stuff, all the electricity that we're consuming, which is growing and growing more and more each year. Like it has a real impact on us because it's impacting our environment and we are sustained by the environment. So um, I, I think what's going to happen, and this is where my, my pessimism comes in, is that we'll just eventually create and create and create until we get to a place where we have to have it to sustain us in some way. Um, and I don't know if that leads into the matrix or what, but yeah. um, I think it comes from a good place sometimes. It comes from a place of wanting to help and wanting to address problems, but there's usually a simpler way to do that versus like making let's let's use an algorithm to do that or let's do this or this um and there are there are times when we could use that but then i think simply now we're just like let's just make it for everything let's automate everything let's uh, streamline this and we see this now with the response to the yeah. great resignation it's now it's like people are ha having to integrate robotics into their workforce because nobody's working and nobody wants to work in in those yeah. and that's not political commentary i'm just i'm just telling you why companies are integrating robotics and we've purchased more robots in the last year uh, than i think we ever have as a country and so that's greatly going to impact us in a lot of different ways and um i just think about even with automated vehicles autonomous vehicles um you know, if if we full sale accept that we're going to automate truck drivers, you know, and we're going to uh, shift that role, which is like a, a massive industry in the U.S., right? There's a lot of people that drive a truck. Um, and we're going to reduce that salary. The truck driver is going to become a maintainer. Like, what impact is that going to have on our economy? You know, it's going to be great for... Uh, companies like Tesla and other places, but for the average Joe and Jane, like it's it's going to be really hurtful to us. It's going to impact our communities. Um, I live I live in a small yeah. town, um, and I don't I don't think people are thinking about that as we integrate. Now some people are, but there's a lot of people that are creating and not thinking about that. Like um, we don't really we don't really need some of this stuff. Um, but it's it's coming anyway. 
What's that quote from Jurassic Park? We were so busy wondering whether or not we could. We never stopped to th- ask if we should. And uh, we we do tend to be uh, so forward thinking that we stop. We don't stop to ask what the implications are. Now, your dissertation was basically on sex robots. Is that correct? It was on um, a combination of war, work, and sex robots. Yes. Okay. Because um, when I think of the things that really accelerated the growth of the internet, or what accelerated the growth of VHS versus beta, or Blu-ray versus whatever the other, I don't even remember what the other option was to Blu-ray. Um, and even one of the things that is accelerating the growth of VR has to do with porn and pornography. And I can't imagine, we already see the mental decline of youth um, because of the constant access to things online that when I, I'm 43, I could never have imagined those things. How much more isolation are people going to be drawn into when they have a physical companion that never says no, that can manifest all the things they've seen on their screen, can look like whatever they want to look like. You know, um, you can imagine people buying something that looks like a celebrity or that looks like somebody, you know, where do you think that will be one of the aspects that accelerates the growth in this market? And what are some of the real dangers that come from that? So just talking about the, the sex tech industry. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there's a lot of reasons why people make those entities and objects. Um, but there's also, there's a lot of thoughtfulness in some of those communities too, that we don't often hear about because Christians might hear sex robot. They just, you know, the worst, but, um, some of this is coming from a, a medical and psychological, um, you know, background where they're trying to treat different, um, Different, how do I say this, that different people that may not be, uh, may not have the ability to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend in society or may have trouble with that or may have some type of impairment or something, you know. Um, now, that's not the only people that use them. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Uh, but then there's also things on the design side that some of these creators are aware of, like, you know, it it won't respond to certain abuses like it um harmony which is uh ai driven sex bot she she has to be aroused like you you can't just go straight into um sex with her there has to be things where um she kind of has to i don't know how far that goes or to what extent that's true but this is what i've i've read and heard the creator say is that it's it's not just about that physical um, relationship, but also it's it's made to be a companion. So you don't just go in demand sex from your wife or your husband, right? You there's there's things that you have to do. There's stuff you have to put in the crock pot to get it ready, right? So it's there's some of that in the design too. Um, so on the U.S. side, I'm not as worried about the abuse part. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a pastor. I, I know. I believe in total depravity. Don't don't get me wrong. You know, I know people are broken. Um, I know I know we treat each <laughs> other um, the way we ought not to, and and sometimes we don't even know why we do that. But um, I, it more concerns me in places like Japan and in other places that might have less um, pushback against more. Um, unacceptable forms of that so i don't know how far you want to go down that rabbit hole but already with um well so you don't you don't think um just by nature um that these things are like shouldn't exist at all you you think that there's maybe a good use case scenario for something like this well um you were talking about yeah, the medical yeah. field so, um, 
and treating or I, helping I'm people. I'm saying that's not my, not my reason for why we should justify okay. their creation. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there are researchers that would argue yeah. that there are legitimate reasons to create them. Um, I, I don't think I would advocate for their creation necessarily. I think there are other means, healthier options out there for uh, if we're going to explore that type of thing as a medical treatment. Um, and here's why. Because anytime we deal with something that is embodied, has a physical touch, tactile, whatever. Um, so for dealing with a social pariah, like a pedophile or something like that, uh, which is one of the arguments is that they, they can be used to treat um, the person with that mm -hmm. Uh, a childlike attraction okay um but as my friend kate ott has said you know who has a recent book out on sex tech and faith from a christian perspective you know why wouldn't we first go to vr like a virtual entity first versus something that actually looks like a child and is formed like a child and like yeah. my concern would be that it might actually do the opposite it might actually uh, fuel that desire more and instead of taking it away. And the reason why I say that, not just as conjecture because I don't like it, is because you know, I think about pornography, like you're saying. Does it ever, is there clinical research to say that the more you use it, the more that you, um, you know, you have less desire to view it? I don't, I don't think so. I think it, it's the opposite. The more that you give... Um, your eyes to it, the more that that white matter, dark matter lights up and is, you know, it releases that dopamine. It releases those, those good feelings, um, the more that you crave it. Right. And that's why people don't just watch porn one time and then they're done. Right. That's why they spend hours and hours and hours searching through different images, different models, different positions, whatever it is. Um, so you might want to put a trigger warning there. Uh, that's, that's why they do it is not because, it's a one and done treatment type of yeah. thing or that it's a therapy and, and, and actresses and actors, uh, you know, people in the industry, they will argue with you up and down that they are uh, therapists in a way. And hear me like there are lots of legitimate therapies out there that are not clinical therapy but I'm not sure that I would call um, a porn actress a therapist. And so that that's just my opinion. Now, I know there are people that would, you know, be appalled by that and reject that. But yeah, uh, our last. Uh, Go ahead. Well, our, our last guest that we had on was somebody who had uh, a, a nonprofit called Porn Apart uh, dealing with pornography addiction. And it's mainly like a recovery uh, community for women. And I, I had her husband on and he was talking about just the the cycle and how damaging that was on the relationship. Because if you are, there's something about anything that removes us from real social community, uh, but says it's going to gratify the exact same desires becomes kind of a a never-ending addiction because it it does fill whatever urge that you have, but it, it tends to be temporary and more shallow. So I can't see using robots um, in a way to treat somebody who who is uh, attracted to kids as a way of actually satisfying the desire. I, I think, like you're right, with pornography, it seems like it would escalate uh, the deterioration of that person's mental state and probably wouldn't be too healthy um and yeah the the porn industry what was it the they say the average uh lifespan of an adult film actress is like 36 years old that suicide drug addiction things like that so i can't imagine though there might be the temporary justification of like oh i'm i'm a therapist you know and a prostitute might say the same thing uh we can look at the result of that life and go even in places where it's legal, uh, it's still not a, a good life because there's something about uh, we as Christians would believe people being created in the image of God. But I just, I'm just sitting here thinking of how 
deep and all the spirals down. Like it goes off in so many branches. What, what is, what is the area that really fascinates you and that you spend most of your time thinking about when it comes to the complications of what might be lying in the not too distant yeah, future? I think it, it all kind of goes back. This is my, my hobby horse, I guess, if you want to call it that. I think it all kind of goes back to our understanding of what the person is and the emergence of personhood. Um, and so I don't, you know, how we become a character in a story and how important that view is as we kind of, however you want to define person or human, a lot of people see them as synonymous. I don't, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to build out a biblical and theological idea of person, not just human. And, you know, God is not human. You know, I mean, Jesus was 100% human, also 100% God, uh, fully believe that, but, um, like, he is a different being, uh, and especially God the Father, you know, what, what is he like, what is he, you know, yeah. do we call him um, by a gender, um, you know, most of the time we call him God the Father, um, and that's fine, I'm fine with that, but anyway, you know, kind of working from that um, through different texts and kind of seeing this the importance to how we like to justify treating something a certain way based on, you know, whether or not we think it's a person or, and then tying that to the historical analogy of like, okay, well, we'll never consider animals more than just objects. We'll never consider women more than objects. We'll never consider um, black people as more than objects. Like you just go through these different historical analogies and think like, look at all the damage that happened by just not making one step towards saying, no, that's another, like, image bearer. You say, well, okay, but, you know, robots and AI, they're a totally different entity, right? And I agree, like, they're a natural, uh, unnatural artifact. Okay, absolutely. But the point is, it has a moral impact on us. And so it may not have um, morality in it. It may not be able to make moral judgments, whatever, but... If something looks like me, if it looks like a child, or if it looks like a dog, or a turtle, or whatever, it's just proven that we will have uh, certain anthropomorphic responses to it. And even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, if it just interacts in our story, becomes a part of our story, in our household especially, it takes on its own life. Whether or not it has life, not really the point. And, you know, and a lot of people want to go down that road, but I'm... I'm here to say that it matters more how we treat it. It matters a lot, especially because it is just as much a character in God's story because all of this stuff is under God's dominion and sovereignty and throne, not mine. And so people say, well, I can't, what if I kick my toaster and stuff? And I'm like, well, that, I mean, that's up to you, but nothing belongs to you. Everything is on loan to you. So it's an issue of, of stewardship for me. Um, and so there's all these different theological traces that we could go down and threads that go ahead so it's it, it's kind of a, a caretaker theology as though it is um whether it looks like us or not like if you took a robot dog out into the street and started beating it that would have a negative impact on the society and environment that you're in. And even more so if it looked like a human. I can't help but think there was a, a music video on MTV many years ago uh, by Lou Reed called No Money Down. You can look it up afterwards where it's him singing and it was one of the early robotic faces and he slowly starts to peel his face off and there's the robot version of him underneath. And it's it's uh, disheartening or almost kind of shocking. And if you were to beat a robot, simply maybe it didn't do something right, and you were to beat it, that would be a moral wrong, even though it is not capable of understanding or mm -hmm. being wounded yeah. by that beating. Yeah, is I that think so. Correct? I think it, it, it would say a lot about us, uh, especially, I think, under uh, a Christian ethic, as you know, su supposedly supposed to, you know, care and steward uh, not only our own biology, but also other animals, make sure they flourish, make sure the environment flourishes. 
So it's all kind of other things tied into not just does it have a mind, does it feel, um, which I think we'll get there. I think we're we're approaching that sooner than people think, and that's as much as I can say. Um, but I think a lot of people are going to eat crow, so to speak, when they actually come face-to-face -face with some of these entities and they start asking for certain things. And um, we're already surprised in a lot of ways by the creativity of some of these systems. Like, robots want to paint. They want to write songs. They, those, those are the type of things that if you give it options to do, it would, it would probably want to do, like the creative arts and stuff like that. But then there's also a darker side to it um, because they have access to all the things that we create, right? So everything that we've created, but it may have the conceptual abilities of a child, the mind of a child, so to speak, but like with a vast uh, ability to do calculations. And this is what's scary to me is that, you know, it thinks like, okay, yeah. this is what the human race cares about. Like, object objectifying women and, and hurting women and children. And these are the things that they value uh, or the things that they don't really care that they happen or not. And so that that's concerning to me as well. Um, you know, what, what will those entities think of us? Really, they, because they will, will see us in our entirety. Um, and then you give it more time to where it can make rational judgments. Um, you know, it's like, I don't worry about robots taking over the world or an AI. I, you know, it's, I don't think they'd want anything to do with us if they really begin to know our history and, uh, I mean, why, why would they want, why would C-3PO ever want to, to be around us? Or, you know, like we, um, we're so much different than, and I think that's why we fear them is this projection of that we've made something in our image and now it's going to be like me. Um, it's going to have the same broken desires that I have, uh, maybe the same negative impulses that I might have towards something or, and we, we project that onto a robot or an AI and that it would want to take over the world. I think the first thing they'd want to do is get away from us and leave. Um, that, that would be my prediction. I don't know. I could be wrong, but, um, and so, yeah. So what, what, go ahead. No, you're no, good. I don't um, want to interrupt was, you there. I was just thinking that's why my thought. Okay. Yeah. My, my thought as you're talking about this, yeah, yeah, there's a little delay here. Um, my thought is, is if you're, we're talking about Christians having a morality that is, in a sense, protective of these things that we've created, a, a caretaker philosophy being morally uh, good and kind to these things. But then there will be another segment of the population that says, no, this is just a tool, and if I choose to use it as a hammer— or if I want to take out my frustration on it instead of my wife or whatever, if I want to come home and hit it, it's fine because it's mine and I bought it and I can do whatever I want. There, there almost seems to be, in the same way there was division over what to do with slaves, it seems like there could be a division in the future over what to do with advanced robotics and AI and how we take care of it. Um, Good gosh, every sci-fi movie with a robot civil war like <laughs> it tells us that that's not a good thing. Uh, yeah, so do you see like a, a division in how to handle this? It, would it be a big cultural division where we would fight over it like we do gosh. like gun rights I mean, or abortion? At this point, Caleb, I, I, I don't know, man. I think there's so many smaller things that we fight over. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, this could be a huge thing for sure. Like, I mean... And there's so many strong opinions without understanding the research. And so I think that's this kind of folk psychology about robots and about AI. And we don't tend to do well with talking across disciplines with each other. And the computer scientist thinks that, you know, the moral philosopher is an idiot. He doesn't understand these systems. And, and he may be extremely well-versed in them, but... There's just all these barriers to the communication about what's actually out there and what's possible, what's not possible. And there's so much com uh, confusion about even just the metaphysics of it, like getting into the, the weeds of 
what is possible in our own perspective as we make these systems because a lot of roboticists believe that we're just a clump of neurons we're just you know meat puppets and you know it's there's no immaterial and we have all these different i mean a lot of the stuff even that comes out of these you know, very prestigious universities, their philosophy departments, their robotics departments, their computer science departments. It's like, if you look at their anthropology, it's very thin. And um, I'm not saying that there aren't people that have done some great stuff there. But as far as like, you know, I hear people say that, you know, a robot can never feel pain. And you're like, well, well, why is that exactly? What, what in your anthropology and your metaphysics says that it's impossible? because pain is not a physical property. And so it's very much probable that it can. We can make it to at least you know, feel some emulation of pain. And so it just doesn't make sense to me some of the philosophy behind it. Um, and so we have all those barriers working against this communication about what is actually possible. And so there's already a lot of heated language and emotions behind whether or not it's even possible to create these entities. So once we have them in place and there's, you know, just any kind of conflict, of course, I think it's going to, to escalate in. Um, and there will be people who are like, you know, pro-robot slavery and, and anti-robot. It's just so, it's so simple to make that connection just from what we know, you know, with our own historical goes, analogy yeah. And, yeah. and record that, um, and robot, by the way, that the check word comes from robata, which means forced labor. So why are we even desiring to make something as a, a forced laborer? Why are we, why are we even thinking about making slaves? Like what's, why do that? And, and so that's where it starts. So it makes perfect sense to me to think where it ends is more so not, not necessarily in like a big robot revolution, but like, Hey, like the way around this is to say there needs to be certain protections, certain regulations in place to kind of ensure that we don't keep going down the same path uh, in the same cycle of, well, it's mine. I'll use it however I want to, if I want to have sexual relationships with it, whatever, uh, or if I want to beat it or if I want to abuse it, like it doesn't matter. It's not hurting anything. It's mine. You know, who cares? Uh, But I think we could make lots of arguments that it does matter how you treat it. And, um, and just because we can make artificial children doesn't mean that we should, um, or that, you know, if, if something goes wrong, well, we'll just destroy it or something like that. You know, like it gets very complicated real fast. And with as much stuff as developing as much potential technology that's on the table, it just, just has to be the right regulations in place and it could be utilized and profited from. So you talk about uh, robots feeling pain, and my brain instantly goes to the game Operation, where you have the, the little character on there, and you're trying to pull his rib out, and if you touch the side, he buzzes and his nose lights up, and you, you tighten up because you're like, oh, I heard it, you know? I like, oh, I, I, I did I did I did wrong. There's this knee jerk reaction, though we know it can't really feel pain. Even in, in that little children's toy, it like simulates pain. Now imagine putting all of the advanced robotics behind that same idea. And so I think what I hear you kind of communicating is it's moving so fast and we don't even really know what it's going to look like. So therefore, we should think ahead of time and have regulations in place ahead of time to keep it from going down a road that would be um, immoral or mm-hmm. um, yeah. detrimental good, to society. For sure. Yeah, would that I mean, sum up kind of what you're thinking? Come before okay. rules. Right. We want to write the rules first, but really getting the regulations in order and kind of figure out, well, who should write the rules, who should be a part of of framing what is a good or bad action in this instance, or how do we want to use robots in this case, or how does this apply to different cultures and and peoples, um, and then write the rules and make um, license for those operators and and coders, because it's way too simple right now um, for somebody that doesn't have any any kind of training, any ethical training, any whatever, like you can get on GitHub, you can 
get certain things and you can just go to town man you could write there's payloads you can write and just do all kinds of damage i know it's illegal right but what stops me from doing that because i'm a good person like no <laughs> like um and so you know i have mm -hmm. things all the time like i i carry around a usb drive mm -hmm. that i just plug in somebody's computer and it says you know you've been hacked just to show people like i it takes five seconds to do all kinds of damage to to somebody and you know you're at a coffee shop you go to the bathroom i can steal everything that you got yeah and um or you know reverse shell into your and i, I own you you know like i can get everything that's on there um and that's that's the type of thing i want people to be aware of because that's that's what a robot is right it's sensors it's you know encoding decoding it's it's taking in your data it's mm -hmm. putting it into a database and um man it's it's not safe like as far as you know somebody abusing that data or stealing it or you know like man, you could ruin someone's life um pretty quickly by doing some of that stuff so um yeah man there's there's all kind of moral concerns we should have just not even thinking about the skynet stuff just like basic stuff that we deal with every day with identity theft um and the more that the processors get smaller and um which right now we're kind of safe because you can't even buy a raspberry pi for less than two hundred dollars so i mean like there's a national shortage of, of processors so <laughs> i think we're okay right now but um and maybe that's a grace that we get a little bit more time to to think about this stuff um but also you know people need to understand too like companies don't make this stuff unless they could turn a profit from it in some way and that there is a cycle embedded in our culture uh, to consume more uh, to build more and um you know like like personal robotics and stuff they fail all the time because people don't see the value in paying three to four hundred dollars for a little robot that's cool and can do all kinds of crazy stuff with ai but like it's just not practical but you you add into that like an Alexa interface, um, it could be a chatbot, it could teach the kids stuff, it could take out the trash. It doesn't even have to be humanoid, you know, like if it can start to take place in our household, then you begin to really get, get into a different market where it is valuable and we might pay six, $700 to have something that, you know, I could know is, is going to protect the house, you know, to call the cops or something, if somebody breaks in, it'll uh, you know, watch or reg I don't know, like any, any, any type of practical application, um, that can't be reproduced by a sticky note, right? I mean, some people make very stupid robots and like, that's a sticky note that, I mean, let's, let's not make that, you know, let's do, make stuff that actually makes sense. Um, and not something just to throw at, yeah. um, old people, you know, and call it companionship. Um, not, I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. Okay. Uh, but there, there are real uses for it too, Caleb, like, um, yeah. with the companion bot yeah. stuff, there's a lot of very positive, practical things. Um, it does not have to be a sex robot. Like there are, um, things that, that help with autism and there are, um, robots that help with dementia and, and different things. Like we know there, there's clinical data to support, like there are certain groups of people that benefit from interacting with robots that a human caretaker, you know, you don't take them away, but they're not going to get the same of positive responses from them, or at least it's going to take a lot longer. And so it actually is, there's moral imperatives for doing that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with somebody with dementia, yeah. for example. Yeah. yeah. Somebody with dementia, like they could tell the same story over and over and over again to an AI companion. And that AI would be interested every single time and would never be like, you've already told me this story, you're confused and make them feel bad, but would actually engage them for the nine millionth time they heard about their, this person's dog or whatever it is, you know, and I can see, I can see the benefit in something like that, right? Um, I don't want to take up... Yeah, I don't want to take up any more uh, of your time. I, I started to feel optimistic, and then I got pessimistic again. Um, so I don't know where I land. Am I excited about AI? Because I'm excited about technology. 
I'm excited about the future. Um, I'm a sci-fi person. And so I want to see some of that stuff, but I also won't let my kids have a smartphone because I understand the dangers of it. So it's hard for those of us who are interested in this stuff to be excited, but also like, how worried should I be? So you don't seem too terribly worried. There are aspects of it that seem to worry you, but are are you excited about it to a degree? Mm, For sure. Uh, Absolutely. And I'm a builder too. I'm not just... um... I don't just philosophize about it. I'm I'm working to to make things. I'm not. There's a lot of problems with the stuff I make, and um, you know I'm not. <laughs> I don't have help or a lab or anything like that. But you know we we make things together here, and we try to um, you know be very practical about you know learning to code and and learning to do these things and and hacking and all those things because I I think my wife thinks I'm crazy, but I think those are the skills of the future and the present, like that will help our kids kind of be able to push back against some of my concerns. And so I might be completely bonkers. I don't know. But, um, I think it's, it's not that I'm pessimistic about any of it. I'm just trying to be a realist and say, you know, like, uh, there's lots of things I'm excited about. Um, if people will actually give it the attention that it deserves, and and do some of the work required to understand it, you know, and um, but then I, I see things like um, in in the Senate where they were interviewing the CEO of Google and they were arguing with the CEO of Google about how Google worked, and I think these people mm. are making important decisions about our country and they don't understand Google and they don't understand it, so, but they're also the ones who are probably going to be, you know the regulators and and so and then you have tech companies who just don't care um i think quite honestly and that they they have social pressure to to write an ai ethics policy or whatever but so i really think caleb our hope man is just for for everyday people like you and i to be involved in this conversation and say hey look these are the things that we care about and these are some big issues that are a concern and like we you know, privacy is a big issue and, and other things and, um, and data is power. And so, you know, we need to have control over some of those aspects. And so, man, I'm, I'm all for integration of technology as long as that technology is not exploiting my children and, you know, I'm giving them um, their own freedom and privacy to make those decisions for themselves and to make informed ones. And so I'm all for it, man. Like, I, I'm not anti-smartphone. I, I love my smartphone. It is a part of me. I'll just flat out admit it. And, um, you know, I'll be the first to volunteer to go cyborg. I mean, I'm not like crazy or anything, but like, why, why wouldn't, you know, I have terrible arthritis in my knees. And, uh, if you could give me some, uh, bionic knees or legs, sure. Why not? You know, um, not saying it's going to be perfect because we live in a fallen world, but, um, I think we're just a little bit hypocritical in a lot of Christian communities who are like pretty pessimistic about tech, but then they make a living off tech. You know what I mean? Like you, unless you just want to go back to the dark, which I think some people totally want to, they, they totally want the total collapse of society for the internet to go away. But that's not like, that's not where depravity comes from. Like it did, the internet did not create, darkness you know what i mean like so it's it's never about the object and it's always about the person and so that's that's what i'm pessimistic about is the person behind the object and i think you know robots will be i don't think they'll be anything like us i think they in a lot of ways will be better than us and and you know it's gonna want to follow the rules and those type of things and it'll be it'll be better at obeying and and maybe even possibly better at caring for um, our own loved ones. So I don't know, like there's, there's a lot to, to think about there. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you to get his book, Robot Theology. It's available on Amazon, or you can go to his website, joshuaksmith.org. And he's, uh, you, you've got a third book coming up, right? Um, yeah. Coming up pretty yeah. soon. I don't know how soon it's coming. When's the release uh, date? Okay. Um, okay. Well, it's it's due in December, um, 
and I'm halfway through it now, so it's it's about violent technology, and it's more of a philosophical and theological exploration of, of why we create implements of violence and how that relates to political violence and uh, some some theological reflections on that. And so um, it's very, very much an academic book, though, so... <laughs> Okay, well, I encourage you, uh, Robot Theology is a very accessible book, and it's, uh, if you're just curious, you've never even thought about this subject, it's a good place to start. After you get his book, if you would like to support this podcast, you can go to calebmore.tv, buy my book, The Disappearing Garden, Surviving Babylon When You Were Made for Eden. Um, Dr. Smith, thanks for being on the podcast. I absolutely love this conversation. It's fascinating. I think we could go on for another hour down all these Mm -hmm. avenues. Uh, maybe we'll have you on later on in the future, and we can explore more of this topic. But I appreciate your time. Thank you, Caleb. Enjoyed it.